Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, we're happy to have Hillary Earle on the show, and we'll be discussing her new book, The Nuremberg SS Einsatzgruppen Trial, 1945 to 1958, Atrocity, Law, and History. This is a really terrific book. It asks you to put yourself into the mind of someone who was educated probably a little bit like you were, if you listen to this show, meaning you went to a good high school and then probably on to college. And you might even have a post-secondary degree, except instead of being asked to analyze a set of papers or crunch a bunch of numbers or teach a group of students about some topic, you are made the head of a mobile killing unit, and you are asked to exterminate Jews by means of shooting. The people that ran the Einsatzgruppen, as Hillary points out, were just of this sort. Uh, They were quite a bit like people you know, except that they did these unimaginable things. And in 1947, they were put on trial, and they talked quite extensively about what they had done, and they tried to explain it to the judges. And Hillary has taken what they've said and tried to explain it to us. It's a difficult task, but she succeeds marvelously. I really enjoyed reading the book, and I think that you will enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Hillary. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? My day is going very well, thank you. I'm very glad to hear that. How is the weather up there? Because you are in Canada. The weather in Canada is as it always is at this time of year, snowing and pretty cold. Yeah. It's about minus, I don't know, maybe about minus five or so. And with wind chill, oh, minus 30. (laughs) I think it's colder than that here in Iowa right now. Really? Yes, I think think it is. But it's very beautiful. We have a great sunny day. I should tell our listeners that we are very fortunate to have Hillary Earle on the show. She has written a a really terrific book uh, about a topic – um, that it's hard to write a terrific book about because it really, I think, as we'll talk about in the interview, really quite a bit has been written about, um, but I think she breaks new ground with it. Uh, the book is about the uh, Einsatzgruppen trial, and it's called the Nuremberg SS Einsatzgruppen trial, 1945 to 1958, Atrocity Law and History. I read it cover to cover over the last week and enjoyed myself thoroughly. I don't, you know, enjoy is kind of a strong word for a book about the Holocaust, but uh, I learned a lot. And as somebody who has read deeply in this literature, um, I I always take that as a, a mark of a, a fine piece of research and a fine piece of writing. So let me first congratulate Hillary on, on the book. And let me ask you uh, what I guess has become our traditional first question on new books in history, and that is tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm, um, I'm a bit unusual, I think, in coming to uh, this subject. I'm from the east coast of New Brunswick, um, and I'm not German and I'm not Jewish, so I don't have kind of any uh, connection to my topic that way. 
But I do. I was going to um, say, it's, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's funny you mentioned that because I study Russian history and I'm not Russian and I don't drink. <laughs> so I, well, I do drink. Yeah, so, so I don't know what in the world, how it got, how I got there. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I, I, uh, I did my, um, my BA and my MA at the University of New Brunswick. Um, my dad was a, an economics professor there. And for those of your listeners who don't know where New Brunswick is, it's right on the coast of, of Maine. Don't be <laughs> and it's mean a very, now. very, no, no, it's just a very, very small province. I'd say some Canadians don't even know where it is. So, um, so I did my, my BA and MA there, and I was very fortunate to have an absolutely fabulous um, undergraduate uh, professor of history who studied French fascism, and he really introduced me to my, uh, my passion, which was um, the history of the Holocaust, the history of genocides, and essentially... Um, um, you know, why people are so mean to each other. And so I did my BA and MA there and knew instantly, in fact, from the very first history course that I took, that I wanted to do a PhD in this subject. And um, so I kind of uh, thought about where I might go. And I ended up at the University of Toronto uh, with Michael Maris, who, of course, is one of Canada's greatest um, um, historiographers of the Holocaust. And he's at the University of Toronto, where I did my, my graduate work. Um, and now, of course, I'm at uh, Nipissing University, which is, for those of you uh, who don't know, because I didn't know when I applied for this job where it was, um, it's a very small liberal arts university that was a college of, of Laurentian, which is um, one of northern Ontario's biggest universities, and it got its charter in 1992, and it's, um, it's on the Canadian Shield, essentially North Bay, where Nipissing is located. Uh, is about four hours directly north of Toronto. Yeah. So if you go straight up Highway 400, you end up in North Bay. And it's an interesting place because um, uh, it's part of the Voyager Highway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's on the Canadian Shield, and there's lots of, uh, lots of glacial lakes here. Mm-hmm. If anyone or if you've seen any of the Group of Seven's art, it's kind of the uh, subject of the Group of Seven's art. So all those pine trees and um, rocks, <laughs> that's what I live among. Um, and the university set up in the, on the hill uh, amid that. So that's where I am. Well, it sounds like a terrific place. It really does. I, I did look it up, I have to confess. It isn't actually mm-hmm. far from uh, Toronto at all for people that have been to Toronto. And uh, the words liberal arts are um, music to my ears. I'll tell you that, especially, I don't know if uh, you may not have been following the news, but we're under a certain amount of pressure here at the University of Iowa and at all state universities uh, to do more with less. And it turns out that scientists, uh, at least in the short term, do better at doing more with less than people in the did, humanities. So, Did you hear about, did, I, I have been following it actually, and, and it concerns me greatly. Um, did you hear about um, the university, I think it was Warwick University maybe in, in England, that um, they've been asked to cut because they're under great financial pressures as well. And in their history department, I'm not sure if it's Warwick, but it is a school in, in England. Um, in their history department, uh, they've decided to cut all the courses that don't students don't subscribe to in great numbers, yeah. and that means all history courses before yeah. 1900. Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with this. There are, are things... Uh, there's actually a Facebook page. This has to do with Virginia. I believe it's Virginia. History History does not begin at 1877 is what we say in the United States. And, right. uh, yes, uh, also for our listeners um, who, who may know about this, the the only endowed chair in paleography is under the Acts at the University of London. Um, Byzantine Studies 
uh, is uh, Byzantine Greek is under the axe at uh, at King's College, I think, in London. These these are great losses, and they, they really can't ever be recouped if if we get rid of them. And uh, actually, I just wrote an editorial about how the liberal arts um, doesn't pay immediately, but it pays in spades in the long term. And uh, I would be happy to send that to anyone who's listening to this. Uh, this that editorial that appeared here in Iowa. And, I think I'd it's like being passed it. around. I will definitely send it to you because it gives some good reasons to invest heavily in the humanities that they really do pay off in the long run. Um, but anyway, we're a little bit a little bit off topic here, and I, okay. I think I led us there, so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> this is something I feel very passionately about. Um, Me too, and I actually think it's good to take the opportunity to speak about it. I I, I do too. It's funny because my students, you know, I teach classes on all kinds of history, and one of them wrote on an evaluation, "He'll talk about anything." And <laughs> <laughs> well, I will because you know things happen and. We have we do. To, yeah, I mean, we have to suspend our normal activities to, to sort of deal with them, and and I think this is one of them. I mean, a lot of humanities departments and and history departments, I guess, would be included in the humanities in some places are, are under lots of pressure, and uh, I find this very very d- disturbing. Um, you know, and my wife is a mathematician, and 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 I know uh, the situation that they're in as well. It's it's not as dire as ours, but still, it's you know. That we, we have to think very clearly and long and hard about this because we've in, in the North America we've created the greatest educational system on earth and uh, we we don't want, I don't want to tinker with it thanks very much um, no I agree with you yeah so in any event let's, let, okay we'll yeah, move let's, on yeah let's let's talk a little bit about the book um, how did you come to write uh, this particular tome well this is um, it's been a, a kind of long time in the gestation process um, as you're well aware as a historian yourself there's kind of two ways to approach um, or think about things in the past, and one is particular, and one is universal. And I think I came to it via both of those routes. Um, as an undergraduate student, I, I had mentioned earlier that I had this fabulous, uh, this fabulous professor of French fascism who taught um, an introductory European history course, and we did um, a two-week component on the history of the Holocaust. And he had asked um, what I thought at the that moment was an absolutely profound question about Jewish collaboration with the Nazis. And so I was absolutely outraged that someone might consider that the victims themselves would be at all responsible for their fates. And that kind of ignited in me a kind of fury, and I wanted to find out absolutely everything about Jewish history and how um, how uh, how we came to that and how um, and what role the Jews played in it mm-hmm. uh, and I found that I got um, which I think happens to a lot of people who study the Holocaust, exceptionally depressed. I read tons of um, memoirs and uh, read about the, the victim experience, and I realized I couldn't do it because it was just soul-destroying for me. Mm-hmm. And I had a, a kind of... on the. Uh, at the same time, I had a very personal interest in why people were so mean to each other. Mm-hmm. And, of course, this was kind of fed through um, um, the, the the lens of Jewish history. Mm-hmm. And um, so I decided that uh, I wanted to look at it through the perpetrator's perspective. I wanted to understand how um, and why people could uh, do what they did. Mm-hmm. And when I went to the University of Toronto, I had an idea in mind, and um, my supervisor, Maris, didn't like it very much, which often happens when you uh, start your doctoral work. And he was working on um, the Nuremberg doctor's trial um, and the IMT, in fact. He was in the process of writing his book on uh, the IMT, and he said to me, you know, Hillary, the Nuremberg documents haven't really been um, uh, exploited to the, to the level that they could be. Why don't you go root around in the law school and 
look in look in the transcripts and see what's there because um uh for those of your listeners who don't know after um the IMT trial which was the first Nuremberg trial the trial that everyone kind of knows the about one. Yeah, the famous one, exactly, with Herman Goring mm-hmm. and Robert Jackson. Mm-hmm. After that one, there was 12 more Nuremberg trials, which the trial that I ultimately study is part of that series. Um, and so it was uh, the Americans promised, one of their pledges was after the war to publish all of these uh, transcripts for the trials to make them public. And they published in abridged form um, uh, all of the trials. And so I spent about a month going through uh, all the various... 12 trials, and um, sure enough, I came across the Einsatz group in trial. And as it happens, um, I had actually encountered that trial as an undergraduate student mm-hmm. at the University of New Brunswick. Mm-hmm. Um, the same uh, professor who had introduced me to the question of Jewish collaboration had also introduced us to the idea of superior orders as a motive for participating in genocide. Mm-hmm. He had, in fact, um, uh, given us a document, which was an affidavit by Otto Ohlendorf, who was uh, an SS leader and a, the leader of Einsatzgruppe D, who has ultimately become the subject of my research, mm-hmm. um, gave him or gave us um, uh, his affidavit, and we looked at it and we discussed the whole issue of, you know, to what extent can superior orders explain why individuals participate in genocide? And I had remembered that. And I had been very, very interested in that issue. Um, again, my youthful outrage uh, got the best of me, and I, I um, just threw myself into this trial. Um, but trials are uh, not like law and order. <laughs> <laughs> trials are exceptionally protracted processes that begin well before the actual um, uh, hearing of evidence in the court. It require they require tons of of legwork, and they generate literally tens and thousands of pages of documentation. Mm-hmm. And so um, I spent probably, I would say, about four years, maybe four and a half years, reading through the trial transcript, which was, uh, with all its accompanying documents, about 30,000 pages long. Jesus. I went to 14 archives, um, and there's so many people involved mm-hmm. in trials. And I... Boy, it was so hard to figure out how to make sense or make meaning out of this process. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a really, really important process in my view because um, the Einsatzgruppen were... Um, yeah, let's well, talk a little bit about them. If, actually, if you could just um, explain the sort of... Yeah, well, the history of the Einsatzgruppen, um, where they fit into the Nazi hierarchy, what they were designed to do, when, when sure. they first appeared, and that sort sure. of thing. I think it would be very helpful as background. Sure. Okay. Um, well, uh, first of all, I'd say that um, every genocide has uh, troops on the ground that are mobile that go out and seek out the victims. So um, the Einsatzgruppen fall into that category. They are they're ground troops. They were SS men, um, also uh, members of the SD, which was the security police uh, in the in the Third Reich. Um, there's uh, an enormous police organization under Himmler, the SS, and then under him is Heydrich, and Heydrich was responsible for the um, security offices and the uh, police forces. And uh, the Einsatzgruppen were members of the security service and the SS, and they tended to be elites. Um, 
now, of course, there's uh, all kinds of different uh, members of the SS, but the, the Einsatzgruppen were the ideological, committed Nazis who uh, tended to join the party quite young and would do the bidding of the, of the Reich. And um, when, when, the, when Hitler decided to go into Austria and then Czechoslovakia, he needed security on the ground. He didn't just need armed forces. He also needed um, security, and he formed these particular um, mobile groups to go into Austria to help secure the civilian population, and then in Czechoslovakia, the same. And then in Poland, he reformed them um, again, and they worked in tandem with the German military, um, uh, with the civilian population. So their job initially was uh, security. But of course, the notion of security changes uh, over time, and the Einsatzgruppen um, came to do security work that included killing people. And so we see um, from 1938 to 1941 a kind of escalation in their behavior and their job. Mm-hmm. And they ultimately end up being uh, mobile killing units. Mm-hmm. So they 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 um, were sent into Russia in 1941 with the German army as part of Operation Barbarossa. There was four units. They operated in four different parts of the country, and they were attached to um, an army unit. And there were anywhere between 500 and 800 uh, members of each one of these units on such group A, B, C, and D. And um, once the German army had gone in and secured an area, because, of course, Hitler um, had a very particular uh, method of, of securing areas militarily, and so the Einsatzgruppen would follow them, and they would um, identify, round up, um, identify Jews in the community that had been um, defeated, um, round the Jews up, and take them usually outside of town and uh, rob them of their belongings and then shoot them in mass amounts, numbers, and um, mm-hmm. dispose of the bodies in mass graves. And so the images that you that the public is used to seeing with mass graves with large numbers of bodies, that's the work of the Einsatzgruppen. Mm-hmm. They were face-to-face killers, mm-hmm. um, unlike what happens later on in the war when the, the killing process becomes stationary in mm-hmm. the in the camps. Um, the Einsatzgruppen really then kind of, um, I think, are the, the vanguard of the final solution. They mm-hmm. do the work first on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is something I think that I, I was, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think yeah. it's important to, it's gotten a little bit of attention recently because of some, um, I think there was a television documentary, I don't know, but I saw an uh, a, an article by Tim Snyder, who we've had on this show, in which he described this episode in the Holocaust as the forgotten Holocaust, because we have tended to identify uh, the mass killing operations with uh, Auschwitz and the other stationary, as you say, um, um, uh, uh, killing, uh, what does one call them? I don't know. Um, uh, death camps. Yes, that's the word we use now. But yeah. prior to any death camp being set up, beginning, as you say, and as you point out in the book, in the summer of 1941, uh, there were these um, four groups, I guess there were four of them, um, yep. uh, moving around areas that had been taken by the Wehrmacht, and they were rounding up and killing extraordinarily large numbers of Jews uh, face-to-face with bullets. Um, yep. they, tried, they tried other methods. Um, bullets turned out to be the most efficient from their perspective. Um, and one of the things I like you, that you point out about this is that these were not – they were uh, they were attached to military units and they worked behind military units, but they weren't military units. No, they were really something else. And these guys no. were these guys were not soldiers. 
no, this is this is what this is one of the things that so shocked me when I embarked on this research. Um, and now that I'm a professor at a university, which every day I'm reminded endlessly upsets me. These guys were like you and me in some ways. They're very well educated. Many of them had um, PhDs. Mm-hmm. Had I would argue that had the Nazis not come to power, of course this is a counterfactual argument, but I would say had the Nazis never come to power, these guys probably would have taken up academic posts. Mm-hmm. They would have been um, I mean one of them was, Franz Six was a dean mm-hmm. of political science in uh, Berlin. Um, Ollendorf was an economist. There's, you know, they're they're really the elite of the elite, and you would never have expected that they would have been in the field doing this. They weren't trained. Um, only one of them, uh, or two of the, the the individuals that I look at, uh, had any experience in military training at all. So it would be tantamount to my call, you know, sending my colleagues off to fight. Mm-hmm. It's it just that is a hard um, thing to wrap your mind it, around. It, it's it a is. really hard thing. Yeah, no, it's very, very, very difficult. So uh, the, it was it was known somewhat during the war that this had gone on. It was actually it was, it was quite widely known that these atrocities had had been committed. You yeah. can actually read it in the papers in the nineteen in nineteen as early as nineteen forty three. I think you could read it in the papers that these things were going on, and uh, the, the Allies decide that they're going to prosecute um, the people involved. Uh, how do they uh, how do they catch them to, in order to put them on trial? That was an interesting episode in the book. Yeah, it is a really interesting episode in the book. Um, they, well, first of all, with these with these uh, subsequent trials, the 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 Americans who were well, who were essentially um, um, disillusioned with the way things played out at the IMT trial, at the original Nuremberg trial, um, had decided that they wanted to continue prosecuting uh, Nazis. But of course, liberal democratic justice is very difficult to exact on a mass scale. Mm-hmm. And there were, you know, lots and lots of individuals who could have been held responsible for the atrocities of the of the Third Reich. So they decided that the best thing that they could do, the best that they could do in terms of exacting justice was um, to try a representative sample from many of the Nazi agencies that were involved in the, the most egregious criminal activities of the regime. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the biggest agency involved, because Hitler had put them in charge, was the SS. And so they, um, and they had also decided that this, these were not going to be political trials. They weren't going to select individuals who they just didn't like mm-hmm. um, for you know various political reasons. They wanted to get individuals who actually um, they had evidence of c- crime against. Mm-hmm. And so they hired a lot of Germans and they hired a lot of Americans who spoke German and read German to um, to work in the um, captured documents. And there's millions and millions and millions and millions of captured documents. Mm-hmm. And they started looking for evidence of crime, um, and they decided that they were going to, um, you know, obviously try uh, members of the SS, and they had a couple of individuals who they had evidence against. Um, uh, and then they, during during the whole, it's kind of convoluted, but during the whole um, process of, of, of planning their case for the, the original Nuremberg trial, um, they had all kinds of, had arrested all kinds of SS men. So there's hundreds of thousands of SS men in Allied prisons starting in 1945, May of 1945. 
And one of them was Otto Ohlendorf. Mm-hmm. And Ohlendorf, of course, had been um, head of Einsatz Group D. Now, um, I would make the case that the Einsatz Group and trial probably wouldn't have happened had it not been for Ohlendorf. He's mm-hmm. an instrumental figure in this whole story. He um, He's very, very, very interesting. Yeah, he, he, really, um, he really is. I would say it's, it's, it's worth reading the book just to read about him because he's, oh, he's yeah. such a – he's kind of an outsized figure. Uh, he, he he never ceases to surprise. Uh, it's, never. It's, no. So anyway, go ahead and tell 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 what yeah. he did at IMT one, so to say. Okay, so he um he was he 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 had been in Flensburg with um, lots of the other SS men, kind of working and scheming about what he was going to do because you know he saw the writing on the wall in terms of the war being over. So he is colossally arrogant. This man. Um, really has an ego uh, uh, that is extraordinary. And he's thinking that he's a very gifted economist. He's thinking he's a very gifted opinion researcher because he was in charge of um, gathering domestic intelligence for the Third Reich um, virtually from the very beginning uh, for economic issues. And he built up um, um, a surveillance organization and an information agency that was very valuable to the Nazis. And he thought that those skills could be used by the Americans and the British. And of course, he was terrified, I suspect, of being caught by the Russians. Um, the Moscow Declaration made it very clear that, uh, 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 you know, harsh treatment would be had to those um, mm-hmm. who had committed crimes. So he, he really fancied um, himself uh, a, a potential worker for the, for the British and the American occupation. And so he turned himself in with a number of other um, SS men. And um, he was thoroughly surprised when they didn't want to hire him immediately to help them with the occupation. And he was arrested and he was imprisoned by the British. And he immediately starts telling them everything. He talks about uh, the work that he did with the economics ministry. He talks about Himmler. He talks about Kaltenbrunner. He talks about all the big wheels that he knew. And he doesn't tell them anything initially about um, his activities uh, in, on the Eastern Front and in the Einsatzgruppen. So they're a bit oblivious to that. They knew his position, but they didn't know exactly what he had done. So they didn't put two and two together. And then they transferred him to London uh, for further uh, interrogation. And when he gets there, he, for some reason, confesses. And he tells them everything that he had done um, during during the war. He talks about the Einsatzgruppe D that he commanded, talked about the exact numbers that were killed. He knew down to the last individual how many people his unit had killed. Mm-hmm. And um, at that moment, the Americans are in the process of putting their case together against Ernst Kaltenbrunner for uh, the IMT trial. And the British say, well, you know, we've got this guy. Do you want him? And the Americans said yes. And so they transferred uh, him to the United States state's custody to American custody, and he was interrogated for um, virtually an entire year. They talked to him for, uh, more than 40 times, mm-hmm. and he tells them everything, absolutely everything. He's an absolute powerhouse of information for them, and he is used as a witness at the IMT trial, and he, for the first time, explains publicly on the stand what the Einsatzgruppen did. He talks about um, the killing operations, how they're killed. He describes how people are stripped of their clothes, that they're laid down in graves. He gives uh, every 
last detail to the court, and people are absolutely stunned, absolutely stunned. If you read any of the accounts from the participants um, at the IMT trial, they're just flabbergasted. Even though they know, I mean, there's you know all kinds of mm-hmm. information, they, they just didn't seem to put it all together until it was spoken by someone who participated in it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, they still didn't just, dis- I mean, by virtue of what he had uh, told them, they decided that um, he- they would try him, but not other Einsatzgruppen uh, leaders, just him as part of uh, a kind of catch-all case against the SS. Mm-hmm. But then um, Benjamin Ferenc, who became the chief prosecutor in the case, was um, in charge of the Berlin branch of the um, Office of Chief of Counsel, and the Berlin branch was where all the documents were. They were um, taken from the Gestapo head- headquarters in, in uh, Berlin, and they were sifting through them. And one of his researchers came across the only known surviving set of the reports from the field from the Einsatzgruppen. And there was 195 reports. One of them was actually missing, I think 193 or something. And in those 195 reports, they detailed in meticulous detail, down to the very last person, man, woman, and child, um, the murder of about 750,000 to a million individuals. And Ferenc said, we can't let this go. We just can't let this go. And he flew um, he flew to Nuremberg and he said to Telford Taylor, who was um, in charge of, of the, the trial, um, all the trials, in fact, um, you know, can we do something? Can we try these guys? And Taylor said, look, we're, you know, we've got pressure on us from Washington. No, we can't. We've already set the trials that we're going to do. We just can't do it. And Frantz said, look, I'll prosecute. And Frantz was... Um, was a Harvard grad, but he was very young. He was only 27 years old at the time. Never prosecuted a case in his life. Um, but he said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do this. I'll take this on. And if you can just give me some people from other trials, then, then we'll do it. And Taylor kind of conceded and said, okay. And they started planning the trial. Um, and they, I mean, they had this, you know, the, the evidence was, uh, irrefutable. Mm-hmm. Um, of yeah, course, I was, prob- was going to say, right. there's an element of this is, uh, uh, of course, it's, Quite a political question about how you speak about these things, but there's an element of a show trial in this, because I think I think it was Churchill who was rather more pragmatic about these things, who just said they should shoot them. Didn't right? He, didn't he say that? He just said, "Look, we, why waste your time with this? We know what these guys did. We'll just shoot them all." And we know the Soviets were shooting them all. So, right. Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that that's um, definitely true, and of course the Americans didn't want to um, do that. They wanted to um, show to the world that liberal democratic justice was fair, mm-hmm. and that it was based on evidence. It wasn't just summary execution. And um, I actually think this is a really important moment in history. Um, and these trials represent a really important moment in history to you know move away from that kind of 18th, 19th century mm-hmm. notion of guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because I mean, the Einsatzgruppen trial and the, the the Nuremberg trial itself show that. I mean, yes, there are problems with them. There's no question. There's all kinds of um, what I would say are procedurally unfair issues, but for the most part, they really did try and use evidence and give opportunities to the to the um, to the defendants to prove themselves innocent. Mm-hmm. They believed, and of course, there's different levels. Um, when I when I describe this to my my undergraduate students, I say, you know, the United States is not a monolithic organization. There's the political level, the level of of the state, and 
if you look at the local level, what I would call the local level, the people who are prosecuting these trials and who are um, um, hearing the evidence, the participants, the judges, um, they're just as important. And they took their jobs very seriously. Um, the judges in the trial heard the evidence and um, the, the prosecutors, well, some of them were uh, a bit suspect in their in their. Um, um, uh, sharing of evidence. That was one of the big complaints, in fact, by, by the defendants that um, they didn't have access or equal access to all the documentation. And it's true, they didn't. There's no question about that. And of course, um, you know, the, the way that American justice has developed, um, there's a whole set of rules uh, by which individuals can come to trial in a criminal prosecution. Um, the Fifth Amendment says you don't have to speak against yourself. Uh, Miranda came in in the 1960s. But at Nuremberg, they hadn't worked any of those things out yet. And um, people like Ollendorf, who had, you know, spoken against himself, had given evidence against himself, found it very difficult then to defend himself when he got to court. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, his testimony was used against him. So well, let, let me ask this. The, the, um, how did they draw the line? How did they decide who they were going to prosecute? They ended up prosecuting, uh, how many people is it, about 20? I, I don't remember. 20, 24. 24. Um, yep. but, but if I recall correctly from the book, one of the astounding facts is that uh, I believe that there's no direct evidence that any one of these people ever actually killed anyone with their own hand. They certainly, did, they certainly didn't have a shortage of people who were the shooters. I mean, they could, they could have gone after the shooters as well. I mean, later they did. But uh, at this point, they, they, they draw a line. How did they draw it? Well, they decided, well, first of all, they didn't want to prosecute the small fries. They they believed that the individuals who made decisions and who were in charge of units were the ones that they wanted to go after. The Germans end up trying the lower-ranking Einsatzgruppen um, members later on in the 60s and 70s, mm -hmm. um, but the Americans had decided that they wanted the upper-ups. And so what they did was the, the reports had um, had did not list individuals on on them. So all they knew was that Einsatzgruppe A, B, C, or D was responsible for the killings in certain areas. So that's the information they had. Then they had, um, from from the Gestapo records that they had, they had all the SS uh, records of these individuals, of the individual uh, leaders of the groups. And so they could determine who was in charge of which group when. And then they cross-checked to see who was in custody, um, and uh, th that's essentially how they did it. And they mm -hmm. cut it off because there was only 24 seats in the mm -hmm. in the um, in the courtroom. But there was about 90 individuals, 90 le 90 leaders altogether, mm -hmm. and only 24 of them are prosecuted, which doesn't seem kind of fair. But it was the best that they could do. And what were they what were they charged with? I think I was a little bit surprised about this as well. Yeah, they were the 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 principal charge against them was crimes against humanity, and they're charged with war crimes and membership in organizations uh, declared criminal by the IMT. But the principal charge really is crimes against humanity, and um, and what is that exactly? Well, crimes against humanity are crimes committed against uh, civilian uh, uh, civilians mostly in this case, um, and unfortunately. It's rather um, ambiguous in the the uh, in the actual indictment. They it's kind of a a catch-all category for anything that isn't a war crime. Mm -hmm. So it can be murder, torture, rape, pillage, um, all of those things that are not in furtherance of the war. So they're crimes outside of 
of of the actual execution of the war. And I would argue that, um, you know, in fact, these are, it develops, crimes against humanity develops over time to genocide, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the way that they wrote the, the way that they wrote the law, um, ensured that they could prosecute individuals for helping. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have to actually pull the trigger for giving the order, for participating in that crime uh, individually. And it could be as simple as one murder. It didn't have to be a group of murders. It didn't have to be any more than one, the way they wrote the law. So it gave them lots of flexibility to prosecute um, people like the leadership um, who actually didn't pull the trigger themselves. So um, it was a very kind of uh, um, uh, useful uh, category. And, of course, it's new. It's new, and it's developed over time. And um, um, uh, the distinction today between crimes against humanity and genocide is one of intention, largely, um, the intention to kill the group, um, whereas crimes against humanity doesn't require that level of proof in the court. Mm-hmm. So it's... It's changed. I see. Let, let me um, move on to the question of uh, – I mean, I think it's the most interesting question in the entire trial. Uh, there was an overwhelming amount of evidence of every imaginable kind. Uh, it was more or less known that they had done it. Uh, and this makes the uh, task of defending them, that is the leaders of the Einsatzgruppen, uh, very difficult. How, how did they do it? And I'm also interested to hear a little bit about why um, – the court, and this begins at the original or IMT trial, forbade, even though they really couldn't do it, forbade uh, a defense in terms of superior orders. Right. Um, this goes back to my very first discussion of, um, of Olendorf's affidavit. Um, the whole issue of superior orders, had they allowed that? Well, first of all, all the judges at the IMT trial got together and heard briefs from all the lawyers uh, in 1945 about the whole issue of superior orders, and they decided that it couldn't be used as a defense because ultimately it would just come down to Hitler then. Um, that was essentially their reasoning. Had had they allowed superior orders to um, to be a, a legitimate defense, um, you know, only one person ever would have been held accountable. So they rejected that. They rejected that. They considered it in mitigation if, um, uh, if they felt it was... Um, uh, useful in sentencing, but in terms of the actual defense, it wasn't allowed. So, um, in terms of proving, uh, their case, this largely depended on, or defending the defendants and proving the case by the prosecution. Because there was no, um, uh, direct evidence, the judge in the Einsatzgruppen trial plays a very, very important role in the way the case plays itself out. He is, um, now, this isn't true in all the trials, but in the, in the Einsatzgruppen trial, he takes the role kind of as the prosecutor and the chief arbiter of evidence. Mm-hmm. And, um, he has to go obviously by the laws that, uh, were formulated, and so he doesn't take into account the role of, of, or the, the defense of superior orders, although he does want to hear what the defendants have to say. And he's very, very deeply, deeply interested in their stories. He wants to know why and how individuals who are educated, who are the leaders or potential leaders of a country, come to uh, participate in this atrocity. And he he's interesting in and of himself because he has his own history. And we can't understand, I don't think, this trial without understanding him. He... Um, 
he, he's in, he's in, I was going to say, he's another one of these characters that really is quite amazing. Go ahead about him. Yeah, no, he's, he fascinated me. He absolutely fascinated me. He, he, he's an Italian American. Um, he comes from an immigrant family, big family. He was very, very well educated. He had seven university degrees, I believe. He lived in Italy for a year. He met Mussolini. Um, he had a very, very color, colorful, uh, um, um, legal career in the United States, which ultimately becomes very uh, controversial. In fact, he um, he he defended Sacco and Vanzetti, and you know watched their ex- execution. And as a result of that, he truly believed they were innocent. And as a result of that, he became an avid campaigner against the capital punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, he his mother had been killed by a drunk driver, um, and he. Uh, uh, implemented the harshest uh, prison sentences for drinking and driving in the United States. Um, he very, very colorful character. He becomes a, a vehement anti-communist after the war. Um, ironically, after having you know supported or defended Sacco and Vanzetti, and he's also got a really big ego, and he likes to uh, be center stage. He believes that he knows best. He's um, he writes novels, really awful, dreadful novels. He. He sees the courtroom, I think, as a kind of stage for himself, for his own performance. And so he positions himself in this courtroom at the center. The defendants sometimes don't, aren't the center of attention. He is. And um, he, because of his anti-capital punishment stance, he decides that, um, and the evidence in his view isn't... Um, isn't completely clear. You know, it doesn't say on the Einsatzgruppen document that Otto Ohlendorf killed, you know, five people on X day or something. So he determines that the only way he is going to sentence people to death, um, which is the standard um, um, sentence for people who have committed murder and crimes against humanity, mm-hmm. uh, he decides that he is going to ensure that they confess to it on the stand. Right. And he won't let it go. He, there's... There's defendants that he questions for days and days and days and days um, to get them to admit, yes, all right, I killed 60 people, okay. You know, essentially, are you happy? And he is. Mm-hmm. He is. And for the, if you look at the, the actual, um, the actual sentencing, um, he does not uh, pass the death sentence on people who don't confess on the stand. Mm-hmm. It's a fascinating. Yeah, that is very. That is that is extremely interesting. Well, how did they defend themselves against this uh, barrage? I guess this. It's sort of a. Um, it's sort of a, a twofold attack. He's, they're being attacked by the judge and by the prosecutors. How? How? What did they say? What did people like um, Ollendorf say in their defense? Right. Okay. So Ollendorf says, um, and they all do. They all have the the essentially the same defense, um, except for the ones who deny everything. Um, Ollendorf says he was following um, superior orders that uh, Himmler, Heydrich, and Hitler had ordered uh, ordered um, the murders, and that he's not responsible. That essentially, um, and nor was it a bad thing because he says he was doing it uh, in you know for. Hitler, mm-hmm. um, and he was not to question that. Um, he gets uh, resoundly questioned by Masmano, the judge, and by um, the prosecution about the whole morality of the of what he had done. He he, he can't not. Um, admit that he did it because he had confessed to it publicly at the IMT trial. So it, again, as I said, it makes it very difficult for him to defend himself. So he casts it in um, um, as a superior order. 
and refuses to engage in the issue of morality. He utterly refuses. And he says maybe numbers aren't actually accurate, and they all do this too. They think somehow by saying that they were responsible for the deaths of fewer people, that somehow that would mitigate their responsibility. Um, some of them said, look, you can't prove I was there. Just because I was in charge of the unit doesn't mean that I was actually present. I was, in fact, in Berlin um, meeting with Heydrich at the moment that my unit killed 3,743 people. Um, prove that I was there. Uh, others, very cleverly, like um, Franz Zix, said, you know, I was just gathering documents. Um, I was only there for three weeks. I asked um, once I found out what you know things were going on on the on the front. I asked to be uh, returned to Berlin, reassigned. I couldn't stand it. I didn't do anything. Um, and of course, probably the most common uh, defense was, well, um, these are reprisal shootings. These are not um, these are not uh, acts of racial uh, ire. Um, we were we tried people. We found they were trying to kill us. They were partisans. They were sabotaging our efforts. So we um, rounded them up and we held trials and investigated and decided that they were guilty. And therefore, we had to to shoot them. And it was, you know, of course, a vicious war on the Eastern Front. And um, Stalin said there were no limits. And Hitler said there were no limits. And indeed, this is part of the fact that there were no limits. So I, I kind of see it as a shotgun defense. They put every possible defense that they could think of forward um, to try and defend themselves in an indefensible situation, essentially. No, I mean, I think that's right from a legal standpoint. There, there are two points I want to dwell on a little bit because I think they are extraordinarily significant and you deal with them very nicely. Uh, and they're significant, I think, for different reasons. And they both have to do with uh, Ohlendorf's and the other's defense. The first one uh, is their recourse to the um, superior order's defense, particularly in the form of uh, what uh, I guess we'll just call the, f the the Hitler order. Let's put it that way. Uh, mm -hmm. That is a specific order on a specific day at a specific time by Hitler to prosecute the uh, genocide, what we would call the genocide of the Russian Jews. That's that's point number one, and I want to talk mm -hmm. about that. And then point number two is this notion that Ollendorf and the others present that somehow they felt that what they were doing was justified because they really truly believed that the Jews were communists and that the communists were inveterate enemies of the Reich. So they were operating under duress, under the reasonable assumption that what they – reasonable to them that the, the Jews were actually uh, going to cause them harm. But let's start with the very first one about this Fuhrer order because it's a it's a the Fuhrer befell. It's a, it's a this is a point of great contention in the historiography. Why don't you just uh, sketch it for us a little bit? Yeah, it is a point of great contention. I mean, um, anyone who's um, read anything about the Holocaust knows that one of the 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 great um, um, tragedies, I guess, of trying to figure this whole thing out is that there's no documentation anywhere that we've ever found that connects Hitler to the decision to kill the Jews. And and so what we have is a bunch of circumstantial evidence about, um, uh, you know, when the decision was made, who it was made by, um, so how the final solution unfolds. And it's all part of the uh, intentionalist 
functionalist debate about whether or not Hitler had intended to kill the Jews from, you know, the moment of conception of him to um, whether or not this was, uh, as Christopher Browning calls it, a kind of, um, or as Karl Schleunis calls it, a twisted road to Auschwitz, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, and so the Einsatzgruppen trial, I think, falls um, or plays a really kind of important role in that discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're you're familiar with Raul Hilberg, oh, I, I am. imagine. Oh, yes. Actually, we talked yeah. about him just a couple of weeks ago on the show. Yeah, he's a I mean he's the father of this subject. He's the first person to look at all the documents and he uses all the documentation from the Einsatzgruppen trial um, to formulate his theory, you know, his his idea, um, the machinery of destruction. Um, Helmut Krausnick, uh, Martin Brojat, who are also important scholars, Lucy Davidovitz, all of them use the documentation from the Nuremberg trials and the Einsatzgruppen trial to formulate their um, their views of the way that uh, the final solution plays itself out. So in the early I guess in the early years of the historiography, it was believed that um, that the decision to kill Europe's Jews was made sometime in 41. It was kind of always believed, except for Lucy Davidovitz, who believes that Hitler had decided very early, like in 1919, um, that the decision was made before Operation Barbarossa, so before June 22, 1941. And Ohlendorf... Um, is instrumental in, I believe, in um, that story because he says from the minute he is arrested, from the minute he confesses to um, the the activities of the Einsatzgruppen, that the order had been given well in advance. Yeah, I mean, he mentioned that he mentioned like practically a specific date, place, and time. He says this he is does. where I learned about it right here, and yep. they said that it was from Hitler or he'd seen a piece of paper or something like this. He was very specific about it, and as you point out in the book, this was not a guy with a bad memory, and he was wasn't somebody to lie. In fact, on the contrary, he was saying lots of things that were against his own interest. <laughs> so why would exactly. we believe him? Yeah, no, exactly. He's very, very, very believable. And I mean, frankly, we don't actually know if it's not true. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, you know, in terms of reason, I have thought about this and thought about this because the convention in my field, in the historiography, is that no, the decision was made some August, September, October, November, December, 1941. Um, that in fact, that it was decided on after the Einsatzgruppen had been deployed. But why would Ollendorf lie about it? He had absolutely no reason to lie about um, about when the decision was made. I mean, none. And frankly, the prosecution didn't care. Yeah. Their view of things was a very intentionalist view of the way that um, um, decisions were made. This is a hierarchy. Hitler's clearly in charge. They've read Mein Kampf. They know he hates the Jews. They know the Jews are killed. Um, and in terms of a court of law, this is very important. In terms of a court of law, um, intention doesn't matter in this case. Uh, who made the order is unimportant to um, proving crimes against humanity. All they had to prove was that um, the individuals did it. So the link between um, who gave the order and when it was given is not necessary to proving guilt or culpability. One of the things you point out in the book is that uh, this was an uncontroversial theory, that there was a Hitler order. I mean, I think everyone simply assumed that there was. And so when Ollendorf says, yes, there was, I mean, this was really playing to what they felt they already knew. Um, exactly. And, and it was only later that uh, after they had searched through these zillions of documents and failed to find uh, – 
the order on you know Hitler's personal stationery that people began to wonder about uh, whether there was in fact uh, this order. I, I find the whole thing absolutely fascinating because I've read very closely in the literature attempts to pin it down. And, well, Christopher and, Browning goes like minute by minute I, in his book I, on I, the final solution. I read it. I read it, and I read it twice. In fact. Um, and it's really a very mysterious thing to try to de- – it's, it's very difficult to try to decide when the decision was made on the basis of what we know. Uh, and it's really a fascinating historical problem. But I want to, I want to move on to this, the second um, – Can I just say, yeah, can I just say something to that? Sorry, I just want, I just want to um, – I just had a thought. Um, it seems to me that one of the issues here when we're thinking about that in the historiography and wanting desperately to uh, you know, have some kind of written document, um, it's really important to bear in mind the way that uh, Hitler made decisions and the way decisions are ordered. And I think that historians sometimes make the mistake of thinking, again, that there's kind of monolithic uh, decisions. Like, um, I think that perhaps, maybe, some individuals like Ollendorf, who had, um, who had, uh, who's high-ranking and who had the ear of Himmler and Heydrich, might have known beforehand where others might not have. Mm-hmm. Um, it might have been a very uneven discussion, mm-hmm. you know, that the that the the decision maybe was made, and maybe it was made orally, or the discussion was had. And I just want to add one more thing to that in terms of Ollendorf as a defendant on the stand and testimony. Um, I, I didn't articulate this in the book, but I do think that when... An individual is involved in something as grand, and I don't mean grand as in a good thing, but huge, as a genocide, that maybe when you're remembering back, maybe that isn't the issue that you remember. Maybe, you know, maybe your memory is clouded by um, what you've done afterward. Mm -hmm. So I think memory is a hard thing in this instance. Mm-hmm. Also, I mean, I, I think just to do a, a simple thought experiment, let's see, he was being tried in what year was it, 47, 46? Yeah, 47. 47. Uh, and he was being asked to, to remember things that had happened in 1941, six years earlier. Try to he remember was, what you were doing six years ago. Well, they did, you know, the, the, psycho- the psychological experiments. He was the second smartest Nazi, according to the IQ tests that they gave all of them there. He seemed to have a remarkable memory. Mm-hmm. If you read his his, um, his uh, interrogation reports, he remembers unbelievable details. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty remarkable. Well, let's go on to the second okay. of these, of these two issues, and the second one uh, outside the uh, Hitler order has to do with what the people like. Ollendorf actually believed, and 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 Ollendorf seems to suggest, or it is interpreted in the book, or something uh, along those lines, that uh, he 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 maybe really did believe he was a true believer. We've said that that yeah. the Jews were uh, not, not only the enemies of the Reich, but the efficacious enemies of the Reich. That is, that they could actually do harm to the Nazi project. Oh, what do you think about this? Oh, I have mixed feelings about this. Um, it's certainly a defense that they put forward. The defense is called putative uh, justification, and it means in law that um, you have a right to kill people if you genuinely believe that those people are going to harm the state. So it's a preemptive, it's a preemptive murder mm-hmm. essentially, and um, courts. Uh, take this very seriously, um, and particularly European courts. It was um, a, a kind of common um, defense in European courts, way more so than in American courts. Now, 
if if you hear what the defendants have to say in their explanations of their um, formative years growing up in Germany, I do believe that they genuinely believed what Hitler believed in the sense that the Jews were trouble in Germany, that they were communists, that they were um, undermining the strength of the state, that they were undermining what it was to be German. And I do believe that they believe that ideology. Mm-hmm. Now, whether or not in practice when you're in the field and shooting a one-year-old child, if you genuinely believe that I, I, I mean, I think that takes a leap of psychology mm-hmm. to explore. I can't explore it historically, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but I do, yes, I do believe they believe that. And I mean, they're colossal nationalists. Yeah. This is at the heart of everything. Yeah. This is um, this is the lesson of it all. Uh, they gave up their morality in furtherance of the state. They gave up, or they trans, trans. Um, transformed their morality mm-hmm. for the state. And um, when you do that, you can do anything, I think. You really do mm-hmm. relinquish um, relinquish your choice at yeah. that point. Yeah. You know? I, I, I found that... Uh I found that one of the most fascinating parts of the book uh, because it is really, really hard to enter the mind in a kind of Verstehen-like way of someone yeah. who went to institutions like you went to, and we both went to them, and many of the listeners did. That is, they were educated in, uh, let's say, a gymnasium in Germany. It would be called a comprehensive high school here in the United States or in Canada. And then they go on to college, and then some of them go on to higher degrees. These are people that have read the books that we have read, know the languages that we know, speak in the same sort of decorous way that we do, um, believe that their traditions began at the Greeks, that sort of thing. Yet they can... uh, believe and truly believe that something as irrational as that that, that there is a, a, a so-called race of, of, of Semitic peoples, the Jews, that are the, uh, the mortal enemies of something called the German nation. This I find truly bizarre. I, I really have trouble explaining it to anyone because I keep expecting them to say, oh, no, we were just kidding. Well, that was just yeah. BS. You know, oh, come on. Nobody really believed that crap in a kind of cynical way. I mean, sometimes you, you find, you know, I say the Soviet Union for a long time, you find Soviets who occasionally would say, yeah, we never really believed any of that stuff. Although on the other hand, you find a lot of Soviets who are like, yes, we definitely believe that stuff about, you know, class struggle and the, the, that right. business. But you don't ever, I, none of these guys ever do anything like that. They, they but never don't you say, think even in your case, like in the case of the Soviet Union, don't you think there's a difference between saying you believe and acting out that belief? Yeah, no, there's a huge difference. There's an enormous yeah. difference, and and uh, and uh, and I think that you know these guys, um, but judging by their actions, they did believe. Let's put it that way. I want to ask. Well, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, no, I'm just going to say. I mean, judging by their actions and the fact that people like Ollendorf asked for a second tour. Yeah. He could have gone home after six months, but he stayed there for yeah. two years. Yeah, it's that, that's true. You know, no, yeah. really, he um, they, you know, they he sacrificed. He felt like he sacrificed, and um, he was doing it for the state. If you have one more, if you have one more second, I know we're. Uh, yep. I'm I'm, pre- I'm pressing a little bit on your faculty meeting or whatever meeting you have, but I want to ask about a book that I read. Uh, a little while ago, actually, it's quite a long time ago, and I'm, and I'm afraid. I'll just put my cards on the table. I'm afraid uh, that most, many of our listeners, or many people that, um, that don't read, I guess, I guess what I would call a professional histories of the era. This is the only book that they've read about the Einsatzgruppe, and this is this book by Richard Rhodes. Um, I, mm. I read it, and I, w- I have to say, I was really quite. Uh, I, I don't know. Just, I, I like him as a writer, and he's written books that I enjoy. But I was very disappointed by this book. Did you? Do you? Have you read it? 
I did read it. I read it, and I, yeah, it's um, it's a popular history. Unfortunately, I can barely remember it now. Um, it's I remember Masters of Death. I think. No, no, I know. I I actually reviewed it yeah, when okay. it first came out three years ago, or four years ago, or five years ago, whatever it was. Um, maybe even longer. Um, it it's I can't remember what his argument well, was. Well, <laughs> the life of me, can you remind? Uh, yeah, me? well, one of his arguments is that the people that did the killing were all brutalized as children. Oh, right, right, and, right, and, right, right. And I just couldn't really. Well, that's the Peter Lowenberg argument at the beginning and this notion. I mean, psychologists, there was a whole spate of literature early on, um, you know, saying that, you know, if you do bad things, it must be for a reason. You must be a victim of some kind to do bad things to other people. And it's just such a facile perspective. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you completely. And I, and I remember thinking this book did not go through the hands of a professional historian because it would, no. it, would not have, it would not have seen the light of day as it did. I'm all for uh, po uh, popular history. I really am. And I think Richard and he's a, beautiful great, writer, he's a great writer and he's a good researcher too. I know that for a fact because I've read a couple of his books and I, that's why I picked this one up. But I was, I was, I was just a little bit disturbed by the disconnect between what is in the professional historiography and, and, and his, his theory, which as I say, I, you know, again, and if you look back at the backgrounds of the people you deal with, they are, uh, you know, aside from the fact that they were really upset about what happened in World War One, mm -hmm. they're people from good backgrounds, good middle class backgrounds with good middle class educations, not brutalized in their homes, totally normal folk, even more than normal yep. folk. They were actually they were quite, um, you know, they, they were quite privileged and became very sophisticated folk. They were the opposite of what I think Rhodes says that they were they they were people that were, uh, you know, they lived in a world of ideas and they lived yep. in, in a world of ideas that turned out to be kind of sick, but they were believers in these ideas. They were ideologues and. Uh, I, I don't know. I was just the, the book. Um, reading your book reminded me of reading that book and how uh, kind of. I, I guess I just was a little bit disturbed by it. That's why I wanted to ask you about it. Yeah. No. Before you go, though, I have to. Can I just say a few more things yeah, about absolutely. that? Because I, I do think it's important. In the, I do think it's really important. Trying to understand why people act is really difficult for historians, but it's not our discipline. That's the discipline of social psychologists, and um, I think this is where history has its shortcomings as a discipline in trying to understand human behavior, um, particularly human behavior like this, and. Um, um, yeah, I, so I, I think that uh, that that we kind of need to open our um, our minds and our uh, 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 avenues to kind of explore what the social psychologists have to say about these kinds of things. And I don't know if you're familiar with the book um, by Claudia Kuntz called "The Nazi Conscience." Oh yes, I've read it as well. Yeah, that's it's very such good. an important book because yeah. I think she shows really clearly how societies can be transformed rather quickly um, to to um, have a new morality, essentially, uh -huh. a new worldview. Yeah. And I, I'm always reminded in our democracies ourselves how easy it is to be persuaded by the media, by our governments, who our internal enemies are. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's easy for people to... Um, you know, when you hear it over and over and over again, and then on top of that, with these guys, they were very, very young, and they were given, and they were very ambitious, which mm -hmm. people who seek higher education often are, mm -hmm. and they were given the opportunity to participate and make their future. Mm -hmm. And you know, that, that kind of fascist ethos of action, of impulse, I think we see that here mm -hmm. um, yeah. in, in that way. And I think it's easier maybe to understand 
um, their behavior when you think about it in those terms? Yeah, well, I mean, here in the United States, I, well, I don't know if it's true in Canada or not, but here as somebody uh, you know who was born in the 60s, I can tell you that a similar sort of ethical transformation has gone on in my own lifetime. I mean, when I grew up, uh, yeah. people in my family used what we call the N-word in free-flowing speech and without any sort of shame whatsoever. And they yeah. really did feel that African Americans were not like us. Right. And in my generation, nobody believes that. I mean, right. it's I, I, nobody. That's kind of an exaggeration, but it it surprises us that that people actually still hold those views and that's right. that's taken what you know what it's taken 40 years to, to do that 40 30 40 years um and that's a remarkable ethical transformation it's incredibly quick so in a certain sense you know what transpired between about 19 you know 1904 in the case of uh the perpetrators you discussed to 19, the mid-1930s, it's, again, it's about a 30- or 40-year period, long. you know. It and, does not take long. And I do yeah. think that context is so important there. Um, there's been a lot of research done recently on newspapers and how influential they were in Weimar and convincing people of certain elements. And it, when you put that in the backdrop of people feeling insecure and fearful, uh-huh. people do a lot in the, under those circumstances, no, I think. No, it's absolutely true. I could, go, I, I could go on talking about this for another hour, but I know you have to go. Let me ask you our, our, our final question and answer really quickly. What are you working on now? What's the next book? I am working on the perpetrators of the um, former Yugoslavian uh, genocide against mm-hmm. Bosnia and Rwanda. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of looking at their testimonies at um, uh, at the ICTY and the ICTR, which is the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavian Rwanda. Mm-hmm. And I'm also interested in the issue of how um, how genocide is prosecuted differently in those cases than it was at Nuremberg. So how historically the prosecution of war criminals has changed over time because um, um, the prosecutors at the ICTY have had a very difficult time, can, you know, securing convictions for uh, genocide in these trials. Um, the burden of proof is really high, and I would. Um, in my own research found that one of the reasons they were so successful at the uh, Einsatzgruppen trial was because they didn't have that limitation mm-hmm. of intention to have to prove. Mm-hmm. So the way that the law has developed over time has actually, in fact, impeded our ability to exact justice. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my new a new project. That's a big one, and I wish you luck on huge. it. And, and when it uh, and and when you get it all uh, wrapped up and put a bow on it, um, I hope that you will come back on the show. I would really like that. That's this was a really enjoyable discussion. Thank all right. You. Well, thanks very much. Uh, we've been talking to Hillary Earle today about uh, her new book, The Nuremberg SS uh, Einsatzgruppen Trial, 1945 to 1958: Atrocity Law and History. Hillary, thanks very much for being on the show. Thanks, Marshall. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. 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 You've been listening to an interview with Hilary Earle about her new book, The Nuremberg SS Einsatzgruppen Trial, 1945 to 1958, Atrocity, Law, and History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.